we have come as far as verse 30. If you remember there, the, the first two parables, the parable of the sower and then uh, the parable of the wheat and the tares. Um, and we're going to pick up this evening with several other parables, but then an interpretation of the wheat and the tares. When, when he gets alone with the disciples, they say, Hey, Lord, tell us about that wheat and tare thing. They skip right over another one that he had given to him. So they have a particular interest in it. So I'm going to begin reading um, in verse 24, though we covered this last week, and then we'll, we'll jump in where we left off at verse 31. It says, another parable put he forth unto them, the crowds, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while he slept, while men slept, and it doesn't say there's anything wrong with sleeping, by the way. I appreciate a good night's sleep. He's talking about the subtlety of the enemy, not the laziness of the people who work. It says, while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and then went his way. The blade, when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir... Didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. And the servants said unto him, Well, wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? The tares is the idea. And he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. But let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say unto the reapers, Gather ye together the tares, and bind them in bundles, and burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. So... Uh, very sobering words. Jesus here, meek and mild. Um, you know, this situation going to come to a definite conclusion. And there's going to be a separating of uh, the righteous and the unrighteous. going to be a separating of the wheat and the tares. You know, sometimes we look at things and say, like, like Asaph did in Psalm 73, Lord, if you're there and you're good, how can you let this insanity go on around us. If you're in charge of all this, Lord, how can you allow, you know, the, the murder? How can you allow the insanity, the hatred? How can you allow, you know, wars? How can you allow COVID? How can you allow? And, and the Lord says, look, it's going to be this way until the end. The problem is the tares basically look like the wheat when they started to grow. And they were sown among the wheat and the root of the tares wraps around the root of the wheat. So you can't pull up one without uprooting the other. And the Lord knows what's going on. He knows that our, those that are his own 
and and there's things going on in the world as Asaph said how, how how is it God that you're good and I see the wicked prospering around you and they 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 mock you it's there's too much for me to handle and the Lord says but there's the end of the age there's going to be a reckoning and at that point in time the tares are gathered and they're bound in the bundles and they're thrown into the fire and the weed is gathered into my barn into my my own place so he tells that parable um, notice in this there's a bit of hostility when he talks about sowing the seed which is the word of God he says there that the thorns grow up and they choked that seed it's that's a natural process something he says to look out for it's it's done uh, and and it can be damaging but it's not hostile to set you know per se the weeds uh, this time, these darnel, the darnel grass, this tares, we're going He's gonna tell us as he interprets it. These are these are those. The good seed are are men that the Lord has, you know, sown. He's changing it from seed to human beings in this parable when he interprets it. But the these other people are those whom the enemy has sown. So there's a hostility involved in this one. We'll see it as we come down to the interpretation. He says, another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like, like it unto a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest among, notice, the herbs, and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in its branches. Then it says another parable. So he's going he's gonna to go through these next four or five parables and not interpret them. He interprets the first two. These now he brings forth, and they're kind of left to us to some degree and the church through the ages to to make an interpretation and try to let them be practical in our lives so it's hard to be dogmatic you can't be dogmatic doctrinally based on parables but certainly they're communicating truth that we're to uh, understand in our lives so uh, the the seed being sown he says the kingdom is like uh, the mustard seed uh, which he says is truly here, he says, um, is the smallest uh, of seeds. Indeed, is the least of all seeds. Immediately, Bible critics want to say, no, no, that, that's, that's not right. The mustard seed is not the smallest of all seeds. The orchid seed is smaller than that. And look, this is not talking about flowers that Israel didn't know anything about. This seed, it says, is sown. Orchid seeds are not sown in fields. This is the smallest of the seeds, and it was, that was sown in the field, the mustard seed. In fact, it, it was known for its insignificance in size, how small it was. And, you know, the, when you get over there in Israel, you'll see the mustard plants, the herbs, they're 10 to 15 foot tall, big enough that the birds can make their nests in them. You know, the, the seed itself is parabolic. Jesus said, if you have faith as the grain of a mustard seed, 
because it had the potential to to produce so much, you know. And look, that's that's every individual here tonight. That's every individual listening. You know, we don't have to have the faith that George Mueller had. We don't have to have the faith that he says, if you have the faith of a grain of mustard seed. Here he says the kingdom is like that. It's like a grain of mustard seed, he says. That's sown that man took a man took and he sowed it into the field. This is agricultural, not floral, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is the greatest among the herbs. He says, in fact, it becomes a tree, which really it doesn't, so that the birds of the air, the idea is the size of it, come and they lodge in its branches. So no doubt he's talking about the unnatural growth that the kingdom's going to see. You know, it was sown in one way. There were 12 apostles. There was small beginnings. And the church by the second, third century, you know, you, you have the Roman Catholic Church. You have churches spreading around the world. The fowls of the air, he tells us in verse 4, are the workers, you know, of iniquity. That the, the those that would consume and do what they shouldn't do uh, if you read verse 4 of this chapter so it says it becomes a play becomes so big that satan finds a place to have his emissaries lodge in it and look we see that as we look at the church today it's grown to this thing uh, we hear sexual abuse we hear sexual abuse of children we hear bad doctrine we hear all kinds of insanity we have the church becoming some political tool instead of working for Jesus Christ and the kingdom it's become this huge thing around the world and there's all kinds of foul creatures that have made their nest in its branches and Jesus said understand that don't be shocked this is the way the kingdom's going to be. This is the way the kingdom of heaven is going to move forward. So it's something we take into consideration. Uh, you know, wonderfully in our own lives, we can ask him to give us the faith of a grain of mustard seed, but we have to understand there's unnatural growth here. Crowds are not necessarily an endorsement of sound doctrine, you know, because they got the biggest and the best and the best light show or the the biggest stained glass windows or whatever it might be, doesn't mean it's an endorsement from Jesus Christ. Numbers, you know, Spurgeon's, I mean, uh, Moody said, you know, converts shouldn't just be counted, they should be weighed. So it's not just in numbers here, he says, but this is what's going to happen in the kingdom. It's going to, you know, move on. Like, I mean, how many people do you see on TV in the name of Jesus begging for money? They have these huge... You know, <coughs> places they gather, they're buying themselves their second or third jet, you know, or their second or third Bentley or their fourth Rolex watch. Or you see the preachers with sneakers with $4,000 sneakers on. You think, come on, you take money from God's people to buy your sneakers. You, you know, you're wearing mu your, your, your mustard seeds have grown into a big place where the fowls of the air are nesting in your feet. So he says that, that now it, said, it just says, and another parable. It just tells us here, Matthew was there, he's recording another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole of it was leavened. No interpretation. You just, okay, it's another one. This is kind of like what the kingdom's like too. 
people want to say different things about this. Look, um, to the Jew, leaven was a picture of corruption, of sin. It permeated. So in biblical context, as we as we look at this, and he's a Jewish Messiah, he's talking to the Jewish people on the side of the hill. They understood that the that the bread on the table, the you know the the show bread wasn't allowed to have any leaven in it. They understood for the Passover, all the leaven had to be taken out of the house. They understood that leaven was a picture of corruption and leaven was a picture of sin. I mean, Paul tells us this in uh, in Second Corinthians. Um, where he talks about leaven, excuse me, let me get here where the world I am. Second Corinthians 5, verse 6. Let me read it to you. If I can find it. Paul says, There therefore we are always confident knowing Ah, that's the wrong verse. I was confident and I'm in the wrong place. First Corinthians. Wrong Corinthians. We're going to go to First Corinthians 5, 6. If you want to beat me there, I guess anybody can. First Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 says, Your glorying is not good. And know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. We hear the same thing in Hebrews. And Paul, as a Jew, understood that was a picture of corruption. So Jesus just... You know, he goes through this mustard seed. Then he just goes and says, well, the kingdom of heaven is like this, too. It's like somebody who hid leaven in three measures of meal until the whole thing was permeated. Jesus himself will warn us about the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of the Sadducees, and then the leaven of Herod in Mark's gospel. Uh, Important for us to listen to that. The leaven of the Pharisees. You know, all the way through from Genesis 3 when Satan tempted Eve, all the way through the Bible says you shall not add to the word of God. And that's what the Pharisees had done. The Talmud was forming and they had so choked the word of God. Jesus would say to them, have you never read? You know, he would say to them, you don't know the word of God. Most of them had the first five books of Moses memorized. And what they did is they added, you know, you could you could defile the Sabbath 39 different ways. And then each of those 39 ways you could do 39 different ways. And they had taken the life and the blessing out of the word of God. So leaven, you know, we think about backsliders. Jesus warned against front sliders and he didn't like them either. They became so legalistic that, that they choked the life out of the word. Then he warns of the leaven of the Sadducees, because what they did is they said they only believed in the first five books. They didn't read the prophets. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in anything spiritual. And they took away from the word of God. And in Deuteronomy, which was Jesus' favorite book, it warns there, don't diminish. Don't add to it. Don't diminish from it. Diminish means to take the smallest thing away from it. And that's God's standard through the scripture to the last chapter in the Bible says anybody who adds to this book, Revelation, I'll add to him the plagues that are written therein. Anybody who takes away from it, I'll take away his place in, in, in the kingdom, in the book of life. So 
there's leaven here. It permeates. It goes slowly. It takes its time. And then when we think of the leaven of Herod, you know, look, I think the church is not supposed to be Republican or Democrat. The church is not supposed to be divided over politics. Our politic is of another kingdom. The church doesn't have authority to tell anybody how to vote. The church has authority to speak morally to our nation and to our congregation. And we can say with authority, this is moral. This is not moral, because this is what the scripture says. But there's a temptation, too, to be, you know, the the leaven of Herod, to allow the church to get so political, it loses its, its, you know, position and its calling and its purpose. so, the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like something that starts small and grows into this big thing that's unnatural, and, and the workers of iniquity find you know they can actually be at home in it. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and sowed in three measure of meals. The, 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 the whole thing was leavened, you know. Uh, the kingdom, it's a parable, it's a picture. They understood it when they heard it. And it says there in verse 34, all these things spake Jesus to the multitude, that's what he's talking about, talking to, in parables, and without a parable spake he not unto them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things, notice this, which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. So it's quite a day in Galilee. All of a sudden, Jehovah is there in human flesh, uttering things that have been kept secret from the foundation of this, the world. And with these parables, he's opening up the kingdom. He's showing things, he said, that have been hidden, that have been secret since the foundation of the world. And then it says, and then Jesus sent away the multitude, and he went into the house, probably Peter's house, And his disciples came to him, notice this, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares in the field. They didn't say anything about the the mustard seed or or the leaven. I don't know why. Why do they want to know about this one? Maybe because there's burning at the end of that one. I don't know what it is, but they say, you know, the evil ones. Are, and they say, Lord, tell, help, you know, tell us about that parable, the wheat and the and the tares. Isn't it interesting? And then Jesus, it's so funny here. He just kind of in rapid fire, boom, 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 boom. No explanation. Listen, tell us, declare unto us what it means. I'll read through it. You can just see it's. it's he says, He that soweth the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. The tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. Um, The harvest is at the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. (laughs) Okay, he made that one clear. You know, isn't it interesting? He just goes bam, 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 bam. They say declare unto us. He did declare it. You know, and it's so interesting here. Look, the the person that's sowing here again is the Son of Man. Um, he changes. You know, that's the man in the field back in 24. The field is the world. Isn't that interesting? Um, the field is the world. 
And then he changes the seed in this parable is not the word of God. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. Isn't that interesting? Sown in the world. You know, James, Peter, they will write to the diaspora. The seed sown through the world. When the Lord scattered the church in Jerusalem, you know, nothing would have happened in Samaria without a little bit of pressure. Nothing would have happened in Antioch with a little bit of pressure. You know, the, the church ends up scattered. He says there, there is a seed that the Son of Man sows. They're the children of the kingdom, and they get sown in the world. Aren't you glad that there's a church all around the world tonight as we're here? And pretty soon we're going to see all of our brothers and sisters. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. The tares are the children of the wicked one. Uh, So again, there's a hostility that we don't see with the thorns. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. It's the end of the age, literally, not the end of the world. That comes at the end of the millennium. It's the end of the age. And the age changes hands from the things we're experiencing to the millennial kingdom. So at the end of the age, the angels come in. Jesus talked about it. Paul talked about it in the book of Revelation, chapter 14. It clearly says the angel came. They thrust in their sickle. They harvested the vine of the earth. You know, we see all of this. So uh, things are not going to remain the way they are. You know, for you and I, imagine what it's like for us to take these truths. I mean, how do you say to the people around you, hey, uh, you know, uh, the trumpet's going to blow. We're going to disappear. Uh, after we do, this is what, you know, we're leaving a package for you in the living room. You need to come over and watch the videos and read the books, because if you don't do that seven years later, and if you survive that period, angels are going to come, and they're going to gather you and tie you in the bushels and throw you in the fire. You know, just have, you say that to people, of course they think that you've, what are you taking? I never had anything that good before, you know. Uh, it, because when we come to people, and, and I see Christians do this all the time, you want to argue about prophecy. We need to get people to Jesus first. When people come to Jesus, then the light goes on. When the author moves inside, then, then, then the rest of it comes to light. Imagine like if the ghost of Shakespeare moved into you, you'd understand Macbeth. Right? Uh, so, so for you and I, let's get to Jesus Christ to people. All of this is, is, is tied into him. It's the word of God. It comes to light. And he's speaking to the church. He's speaking to us. The, the crowds are outside. The disciples are now are hearing the truth about this, what this means and how it relates to their lives. And certainly it's important to us. And look, revival, if you study revival through church history, when revival comes, the second coming of Christ is always epicenter in revivals. It's, it's, this, it's a huge part of evangelism in revivals. Because Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll show you things to come. He won't speak himself, take the things that belong to me, reveal them to you, bring all things you remembrance, and he'll show you things to come. So a revival is not Holy Spirit-centered. A revival is Jesus-centered. Holy Spirit won't speak of himself. He'll take the things of me, and he'll, he'll bring those things into light and give them to you. So... Uh, You know, here we look at these things about the end of the world. It should stir our hearts. 
that should fuel our fire. You know, we study through the parables. You and I have to come away with something. Unbelievers are going to read this. The, the light's not on. They, they don't get it. You know, it's like you can't stand somewhere and watch a sunrise. Uh, you're standing next to somebody who's blind and be angry at them because they don't appreciate the beauty of the sunrise. And it says the God of this world has blinded the hearts of those who don't believe. So you and I, we read through these things. They should have a certain effect on our lives. He says, therefore, the tares are gathered and burned in the fire. So shall it be at the end of the age. So much for reconstructionists, by the way. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels. They shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity and shall cast them into the furnace of fire and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then tares and wheat separated, then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom, look, no, in the kingdom of their father, who hath ears to hear, let him hear. So he says then, you know, he's going to cast them out, there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The whole deal of weeping and gnashing of teeth, Jesus mentions it seven times. When you read through the Gospels, you hear that come from the mouth of Jesus seven times. Twelve times hell is spoken of through the Gospels, eleven times from the mouth of Jesus. He talked more about hell than he did about heaven. Now, of course he did, because I can't imagine anybody, even the people that get me the angriest and bug me the most, I don't, I don't have ill will enough to want to see anybody go to hell. When I sit around and think of what that is, eternity, you know, you, you remember when you were a kid, sometimes you had this dream and all of a sudden you'd be falling, and ah, you wake up. Imagine falling forever and forever and forever. No waking up, burning the whole while. No light, complete darkness. 24 hours, you didn't even start. A week, you didn't even start. A decade, you didn't even start. A century, you didn't even start. You know, and for you and I, we have to realize, look, we go to a lost world now, say he loves you. He died for you. You know, he, he, he's, he's your savior. You can turn to him. But he's also the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. You know, Revelation Sunday, when we kind of get a look at him there in the first chapter, it magnifies his humanity. Because if that's who he is in eternity... And he was born in a stable as a baby and took on human flesh. It magnifies that side of Jesus Christ that he would walk among us, rub shoulders with us, look into our face, embrace us, die for our sins. Let men spit in his face and beat him beyond human recognition. And then you see him in glory. He sends forth his angels at the end of the age to gather out everything that offends but it says, then you and I, the children of the kingdom, it says, then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He with ears to hear, let him hear. Look, it's, it's interesting, uh, at least to me, 
It's interesting. You go to the book of Revelation 21 and 22, and you look at the eternal state. You look at that city there. Um, you know, sometimes Catherine and I will be driving around the car, and she'll say, look at that house. And I do. Wow, man, that's something. You know, but she'll look at that, and I'll say, but look, this, this ain't home. The mansion we're going to see makes that look like a chicken coop. Okay? You know, what's ahead of us? That's what we have to keep our focus on. You know, just what's there. And it says it says when we come into that city, and we're going to look at it, Revelation, the city's 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles high. It's a cube like the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and in the temple. The walls are made of jasper stone. The, the walls are not made of jewels. The foundations are jewels. 500 mile, you know, emerald, 500 mile ruby, 500 mile, you know, there's three stones on a side. Each of them are 500 miles long. And the color of those go up through the wall. The wall is clear as jasper. And the color of those foundation goes up through this crystal clear wall. The streets of the city are made with gold, but it's transparent gold. You know, they have found gold in some of the pyramids from the Egyptians so pure that if you hold it up to a strong enough light, it's translucent. You see some light. It has to be thin, of course, but you see some light coming through. Imagine a city where all of the walls, all of the streets, all of the foundations, everything in the city reflects and refracts light. In the middle, it says there's no need for any sun or moon or any light there because the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings and all of his glory is shining forth in the middle of that. Then it says you and I, all of the righteous by his blood, will shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Each one of us blazing. I hope I can recognize all y'all need sunglasses, you know. Each one of us just blazing in the kingdom and all of that light caught in the foundations and in the walls and in the streets. Just it's hard for us to imagine what it's going to be like. But this is reality. Jesus is saying, yeah, the angels are going to gather. It's going to be horrendous. But the righteous are going to shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. You have ears to hear? Anybody? But, okay, you and me, Bob. We're in this together. Uh, you have ears to hear. Let them hear. Now, again, and you'll see down in verse 45, again, down in 47, again, now these three parables kind of pour out. And uh, this is to the disciples. This is not to the multitudes. Uh, he says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure. That treasure, he said, is hid in a field in which when a man hath found, he hideth it. And for joy thereof, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. So the questions are, what, are, what is this kind of representing? What's put in front of us here? Um, it says the kingdom of God is like a treasure. The next one's going to say the kingdom of God is like a merchant that finds a great pearl. The kingdom of God is not like the pearl there, it's like the merchant. Here the kingdom of God 
is is like the treasure that's found in the field. Um, what are we talking about here? Jesus, he said earlier, the man is the son of man. You know, the, so the seed and so forth. Now he's back in the field here. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in the field. Exodus 19 says this, Now therefore, if you will obey my voice, God speaking to Israel indeed, and keep my covenant, then you shall be as a peculiar treasure unto me above all of the people of the earth. Again, in Psalm 135, he says this, For the Lord hath chosen Jacob unto himself and Israel for his peculiar treasure. Again, in Malachi, he says this, And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my peculiar treasure, I will spare them, as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. So certainly a picture of Israel that, you know, it, it's it's like a man. It's not, you can't make doctrinal, you know, you can't nail this down that way, but he's giving a picture of a man that finds a treasure. And for that treasure, it can't be you and I, because we didn't sell everything we have to get salvation. We got nothing. We're paupers. We couldn't bring anything. But the picture of the person here is he sells everything to get that treasure. He hides it. The nation of Israel had been hidden for 2,000 years. 2,000 years. Among the nations. They kept their language. 4,000 years after the Exodus, still keeping the Passover. They kept their identity. They taught their children. Many of them still spoke Hebrew. You know, it's interesting when the Romans drove them out of, of Israel, many of them ended up in Europe. The Europeans ended up hating them. Sadly, Luther, at the end of his life, propped up some of that, and Hitler used it. But the Jews were not allowed to own land. They persecuted them. So, because they couldn't own land, they became diamond cutters. They became bankers. They became doctors. And then everybody yelled, well, they got all the money. You know, in 1948, when they came back to the land of Israel... Lawyers and doctors and jewelers and bankers had to learn to drive tractors. They had their land, they didn't know what to do with it. They had to learn to be agriculturalists. They had to, you know, and this people was hidden for 2,000 years all over the world and drawn back in our lifetime. That's very significant, very significant. Paul says, you have no need that I write unto you regarding times and seasons, because you know perfectly well that the, the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. When they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction is going to come upon them. But he says, you don't need that I write unto you about times and seasons. Times are chronos. We get chronology from, you know, it's just those are long, indiscriminate periods of time. No sense to write about times seasons is keros and the idea is these are specific seasons that are contained in with these long stretches of time and in those seasons specific things take place that mark them off and we have entered into a season that the bible has prophesied for thousands of years the rebirth 
of the nation of Israel. He, Jesus said, when you see the fig tree give forth its branch, you know summer's near. It's a season. Here, he says, this treasure is hidden. It was hidden. And the man gave everything he had for that treasure. New Testament agrees with that. Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet he for your sakes became poor, that you through his poverty may be rich. We're told this in the book um, of Hebrews. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is set down at the right hand of power. It says here that this man is, uh, is he, he, he's heaven is like treasure hid in the field, the which when a man hath found it, he hideth it, and for joy, Hebrews says the joy that was set before him, he goeth and selleth all that he hath to buy that Field. So certainly this parable is looking at the nation of Israel. When we come now to the pearl of great price, let's read that. Uh, it says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man. Now it's not like the pearl, it's like the man. Seeking goodly pearls, who when he hath found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Interesting thing. The pearls were prized by Gentiles, not by Israel. Israel didn't care about pearls. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it mention pearls. Nowhere. In the breastplate of the high priest, there's no pearls. You find in, in, in the city, Holy Jerusalem, the pearly gates. Everybody always talks about St. Peter and the pearly gates. You know, there's, there's a picture there in that. But pearls were prized among the Gentiles. It says that the kingdom is like this merchantman, and he goes and he finds this pearl. Pearls are formed by pain in the animal. It's organic. It's not pressure like diamonds and rubies are, are formed and so forth. It's a living organism. And he says this pearl is a pearl of great price. You can't, if that pearl is split, it's not worth anything. If you take that pearl and try to cut facets in it, like you do with a diamond, which is worth way more than a pearl, it's not worth anything. The pearl only has worth in unity. It only has value in its being one piece. Israel was the treasure that was hidden in the field. The church is something that was formed through pain. First, the pain of Christ, decades of persecution, Nero killing three million Christians just in his, his own reign. And out of that agitation, just like the pearl is formed inside of the, the oyster, you know, this thing comes forward that the man again goes and gives everything he has to make that pearl his own. It comes from the sea, you know, which is a picture of the nations in the scripture. So certainly a picture of Israel, a picture, I believe, of the church here. Um, again, now there's another kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a net. Now the last parable kind of sums up everything he's been talking about, okay? Um, and I think he gives this one because these guys are fishermen. They, they must take hold of this right away. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net 
that was cast into the sea. So this is not Israel or the church in this picture, the, the nations, the world, and gathers uh, gathered of every kind. And when it was full, they drew to shore. They sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but they cast the bad away. And these men who fished the Sea of Galilee, this particular word for net, it was a larger, longer net, and they would pull it in. There'd be all kinds of fish in that. They weren't net, throwing a hand net in a particular area. This one was spread out and pulled in by the boats. That's what they had to do when they gathered in. They had to take, you know, eels, certain things you don't want, throw them away and keep the, the good fish. These guys are fishermen. The picture should be abundantly clear to them. I'm not sure if it is. They say it is, but we don't know for sure. And said they cast the bad away, so shall it be at the end of the age. The angels shall come forth. They will sever the wicked from among the just. Again, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. You and I will be shining forth like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. There is another group that we need to do everything we can to reach now, uh, lost. And, um, you know, look, interesting, again, in our study in Revelation, you're going to take note of this. The church comes from all the nations, born-again Jews, too, are just gathered from everywhere, turning to Christ. Then you have, during uh, the tribulation, the Antichrist is there to deceive. You've got 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams witnessing in the world. You have these multitudes getting saved during the time. You know, everybody you witnessed to that said, nah, when we disappear, they're going to say, and what'd they say again? You know, you, you, then you have a group through tribulation, great difficulty that gets saved. And, and the Lord, while he's bringing judgment in the world, you know, it says first there's the, the horsemen, you know, that go forth. And, and a third of the world's population or a fourth is gone under this terrible sequence of war and so forth. But then things begin to get more supernatural. It says a third of the oceans turn to blood. A third of the trees are burned up. A third, a third. Because God is still being gracious, hoping to turn the hearts of men and women to himself because on the other side of this line there's eternity. There's eternity lost. So it's a third, a third, a third and God does everything he can as gracious as he can do it and it finally says, you know, he sends an angel flying around the whole planet preaching the everlasting gospel to every nation, kindred, kindred tongue and so forth and in all their languages so they can understand it. And it says, but it gets to the point where men and women lift their fists at the sky and they curse God. And they re- Now, are those tares? Are those tares? You know, he, he gets the church out, then he breaks down the population of the world. So in Revelation 7, multitudes come and they're saved. There's multitudes of Jews that are saved because of these 144,000 Jewish billygrams, because of the two prophets, I believe Moses and Elijah, sitting outside of Jerusalem. But it narrows down finally to there are those. Now, there are those who survive and go into the millennium. We'll talk about that in 2021 if we're still here. But, uh, you know, but it seems like then there's a group who will not 
be softened. They will not listen. They prefer darkness over light. Jesus said there are those who love darkness more than light. It's agape, the word there. They agape darkness more. They're devoted to darkness. Are they tares? I don't know. Makes me scratch my head. What? Who are those that Satan has sung, sown in the world amongst humanity that God would save? I don't know. I don't know. But he says here, the end of it all is the angels will gather, separate the wicked from among the just, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be again, now he says it, wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said unto them, to his disciples, Have you understood all of these things? And they said, Yep, 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 yep. You know, they say unto him, Yea, Lord. Well, did they? He only interpreted two of the seven. Did they really understand all the other ones? Here we are 2,000 years later, filled with the Holy Spirit. We're trying to figure it out. You know, they were there before they were filled with the Holy Spirit. You know the light's not on for them. And they just, you know, they're given the smart answer. You know, at least Ezekiel said, you know, Lord. These guys say, yeah, yeah, sure, we understand all of this. He says, therefore, in light of your answer, every scribe, and this is not the scribes and the Pharisees, this is in a positive sense, every scribe which is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder, which bringeth forth out of his treasure, it's literally his storeroom or his storehouse, his treasures in that sense, things new and old. He says, all right, you understand this? Understand the scribe of the kingdom. He's like a householder, the head of a house. The head of the house is responsible to feed the, the other people in the house, to feed his children, to feed those who work with them. You know, he said, the scribe in the kingdom then, you understand all these things, is is like a householder. And uh, from his storeroom, from his treasure, and that's what, if we understand the scripture more and more, we grow in grace and the knowledge of Christ, more and more we have to realize what we have is a treasure. There's no price you can put on it. First of all, the person that indwells us that we have to communicate to a lost world is it is a treasure incomparable to anything else the, the love of Christ and his care for us even when we're messing up and doing stupid stuff this is the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob think about some of the things they did this is a God who said David was a man after my own heart when he wasn't murdering somebody or committing adultery I guess this is a God who's who the depths of his grace and his forgiveness and his love are immeasurable And he says, all right, you're a scribe for the kingdom. You understand these things. Then you should be like a householder, you know, who cares for his house, who brings forth out of his storeroom, out of his uh, storehouse, things old and new. You know, there are truths in the Old Testament that were coming to light for these Jewish disciples, and there were things that were going to be revealed to them. Same thing with you and I. You know, what we have to give to the lost world, if it ain't a treasure to us, it ain't going to be a treasure to them, right? And and we have, you know, things to bring forth both old and new. Now, it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, that he departed from there. Matthew is walking right along with him here, remembering uh, these things, no doubt. 
And when he was come into his own country, he's at Nazareth, he taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Isn't this the carpenter's son? And they go on. So you imagine now, Jesus, we have one other place, it seems, that he came back to Nazareth, and he read uh, to them about you know, he, he said in the days of, of uh, Israel, no, there's no lepers that were healed in, in Israel, but, you know, name in the Syrian, there were foreigners, you know. And they got mad at him, and they took him to the brow of the hill, and they wanted to throw him off. And he passed through their midst, supernaturally, no doubt, went away. Now it seems he's back in Nazareth, and he's teaching. What is that like for him? You know, he sat at the table with tax gatherers and sinners. Had to tell the Pharisees, no, you don't know what God's like. Here he is sitting with crumbs in his beard. And, you know, he took the children on his lap. He was raised in Nazareth, in the carpenter shop there, which was probably still there. Maybe uh, some of his younger brothers were still working in that carpenter shop. We have emotion because we're creating his image and likeness. That's why we have emotion. We're dysfunctional in relationship. He's not. The Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there's no dysfunction there. But the reason that we can love someone, the reason that we can love sons and daughters or family, the reason that we can make ourselves vulnerable is because God gave us the capacity to have relationship. He's relational. He is within himself. So I, I, I look at this and I think, what was it like for Jesus to go back to Nazareth and see he was a carpenter, to see the stonemason that was down the street that he grew up with? From the time he was six years old, every day he had to go to what was called the school of the book. All Jewish boys went to the school of the book and they sat with a rabbi in the the local area in the synagogue, probably this synagogue, and they dialogued and asked questions and so forth. How many people that he knew that were kind to him when he was a kid? Somebody else's mom. You know, there was always in, when you grew up, there was somebody's mom or dad you really liked down the street. Because they let you eat junk. They let you go in their pool. They sat and talked to you. You know, just, you know, he's, he, he, imagine the emotion. He comes back to the place where he grew up. And he goes in the synagogue to teach them there. To open the mysteries of the kingdom that he just talked about in the parables. And it said the response was, you know, whence did this person get all these things, this power, this wisdom? Isn't this the carpenter's son? See, the problem is that they know him so well that they don't know him at all. The problem is they know him so well they don't know him at all. He's going to say a prophet's not without honor except in his own house, his own. How many of us feel that? How many of us? since we've been saved, want to share Christ with our parents, with our kids, with our brothers and sisters, with the people we love and we work with. And they're going, you know, I know them. They were a druggie or they were sleeping around or they were doing this. Who do they think talking to me about God? It's the same thing. And it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. And I think we can go to Jesus. 
and he knows. He's touched with our infirmity because he, he was tempted in every way as we were, yet without sin. But just imagine him back there in the old town with his old friends. You know, there's other 30-year-olds there he grew up with, 32-year-olds, however he is, and he knows a bunch. There's a crowd that he, he grew up with. And they're saying, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? You know, where is he? He didn't go to seminary. Uh, you know, well, what's the deal with this guy? You know, and it says, whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brethren, James, Joses, Simon, Judas, and his sisters, who I just can't wait to meet. I don't know whether he had 20 or two. It's plural there. How many sisters did Jesus have? And how do sisters love older brothers? And what's it like to have Jesus for a sister as your older brother? There's a couple gals here we want to spend time with in eternity. And his sisters, are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? So just think. I mean, look, understand... James, Josie, Simon, and Jude were struggling with the same thing. This is our older brother. He's saying crazy stuff like he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Mary was worried about him. It isn't like they had the whole picture. And Mary, you know, knew about the angel, of course, coming to her. Mary knew that she gave birth. She was a virgin. And Talmud writes about Mary and calls Jesus the illegitimate son of Mary. Uh, the Pharisees, when they argue with Jesus, say, at least we weren't born of fornication. So there's a reputation, there's a familiarity, there's, and Jesus is looking at people he loves and he knows. And he's speaking life. And they won't listen. I think of the people that we know and love in our families, in our neighborhoods. And some of us have spoke life to them for years. And we got no cred, you know. We got no diplomas. They look at us and think the same thing. But it's a great time then to draw close to Jesus because he, all of those feelings, he's touched with our infirmity. They were offended. Isn't it interesting? How many we know in our friends and family get offended when we try to tell them, yeah, you're a sinner, you need to get saved. You know, there's good news. Jesus loves you. They're offended. You know, they're all right with the Jesus they want. They're all right with the Jesus that lays in the manger as long as he leaves them alone, you know. They're all right with the Jesus who's like Buddha, Muhammad, one of the teachers in the world, you know. They just don't want to hear about the real Jesus. Neither did the people that grew up with him want to face the real Jesus. He said, a prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. That's encouraging for all of you, isn't it? That's why we come here. It's important to get together with every other kook, religious kook. You know, we have the great kooky family when we get together here. Uh, you know. A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. It doesn't say he couldn't have, but they didn't know they needed forgiveness. They weren't coming. They didn't know, you know, they needed his touch in their lives. They didn't, you know, they didn't say he didn't do any. He didn't do many, you know. So... 
parables. I'm kind of glad we're through that chapter. There's a lot there for us to look at and a lot of things Jesus didn't interpret. And it kind of leaves us up to us to dig through the rest of the scripture and see at least what is consistent with it. Um, and, and, and there are things for us to learn, obviously, in that. They're recorded and it's preserved for 2,000 years so we can read them. And what a great picture of being around the people you're most familiar with that you grew up with that still can't hear what you're saying to them. You know, I think the more we grow in grace and the knowledge of Christ, the more broken our hearts up. The more we know about the love of Jesus. You get up and look at, look at what stands in front of the mirror in the morning, and you think Jesus loves that? And he knows everything that's in there shouldn't be in there. He knows everything in there still needs to change. He knows everything in there that's not like him. But he knows what he started. He's committed to continue the good work. He's begun in us. And when we're overwhelmed with his love, then we're contagious. You know, then we're contagious. But everybody's not going to come. Everybody's not going to come. So we need to sow. Sow the seed. The Lord will uh, the Lord will bring production and growth. That's what He does. Um, family and friends, look, you're in good company. They don't want to listen to you. You couldn't be in better company. They didn't want to listen to Jesus either, and He was God. So don't take it too hard. Uh, let's stand. Let's pray together. Read ahead. Um, John the Baptist, Herod, um, head on a platter. There's just great stuff uh, as we move forward. Father, we thank you for these things, and we look at them, Lord. And they, they speak to us from different angles. They have different things to say to us. And, Lord, your king, the, the parables, Lord, there, there's a heaviness to them, Lord, but there's a sweetness to them. There's truth, Lord, that's, that's unrelenting, that's, that will not bend, that will not yield. And, uh, Lord, but it's bathed in your grace and your love and... You tell us that we're going to shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. How we, how we look forward to that in this crazy world that's unraveling. We have something that is unshakable. And we're thank you. Thank you for that, Lord. Give us grace with friends and relatives, friends that uh, don't want to hear what we're saying, Lord. Let us find it easy to come to you and pour out our hearts. And, Lord, to hear you say, I know. I know. And we trust that you'll do that, Lord. Uh, we put these things before you, Lord. We uh, look forward to gathering on Sunday if the trumpet doesn't blow uh, between now and then. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we pray in your name. Amen.